welcome to the CND podcast. I'm Naima Kalachand and I'm the clinical editor. In today's podcast, I'm going to be speaking to Mikan Patel. Mikan is one of CND's clinical advisory board members and is also the lead pharmacist for gastroenterology at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. I spoke to Mikan over an online call from his home in London. We started off by talking about inflammatory bowel disease and Mikan explained to me the difference between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So inflammatory bowel disease is a relapse and remitting sort of autoimmune condition where the gastrointestinal immune system kind of responds inappropriately. It comprises of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Now, IBD tends to affect approximately 1 in 250, uh, 250 people in the population and tends to peak around age between mid-20s to mid-30s and around 50, mid-50s to mid-60s. So, you know, we also kind of have to bear in mind that has a massive impact on this, on patients' lifestyle in those cohort in terms of, you know, the impact on education, family, work life, etc. But yeah, so it's an umbrella term for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And would you be able to tell me a bit more about each of those then as well, individually? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Crohn's disease can happen anywhere between the mouth right up to the anus, um, and it's often transmural, so it can, you know, uh, penetrate right through the tissues muscles, um, of, the, of the of the gastrointestinal tract, um, and ulcerative colitis tends to happen in the large bowel segment and tends to be superficial, so so quite localized from there. So you know you could have it could affect your transverse colon, ascending colon, or the descending colon, and so it's quite localized from that angle. And what kind of symptoms, are, you know, are there similar symptoms from both conditions? You know, is there crossover symptoms for inflammatory bowel disease in general? Yes. So, yeah, the symptoms are quite common for both, really. Um, so what we tend to see is increased uh, frequency in bowel movement, uh, increased urgency. So, you know, we typically sometimes have patients going maybe 15, 20 times a day, severe increase in, in, in the bowel movements in comparison to the, what the baseline would be. Um, often patients may present with abdominal pain. Um, or blood loss, um, anemia. If you do a you know, blood test, it might come through that they're anemic. They may look very pale as a result of you know, losing a lot of blood, feeling tired. And quite a good question to ask patients is about their nighttime symptoms. You know, are they having to wake up at night in terms of going to the toilet, you know, to pass through bowels and in terms of bowel movements? Because there's a lot of overlapping symptoms between inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, celiac disease. So it's it's very important that we we are able to kind of you know kind of navigate through that. And nighttime symptoms often tend to be very common in inflammatory bowel disease. There's a quite a good question to ask. I suppose the kind of you know your red flag symptoms if the patients come in to sort of community pharmacy or even GP practice and you know you're doing a clinic, you know bloody diarrhea is definitely a red flag symptom. But also it's associated with like uh, sepsis, so you want to rule out you know. Have the patients got any fever? Are they tachycardic? You know, hypertension. Uh, these are classic signs of, of sepsis. So, you know, you've got to bear that in mind. And if they are, then, you know, you want to refer them pretty, pretty, pretty quickly. But, you know, and the other kind of thing you've got to back of your mind is there's also overlap between colorectal cancer and IBD as well. So you want to rule out uh, any colorectal cancer as well. So, you know, they're presented with a bit of unexplained weight loss, extreme sort of tiredness, fatigue, 
or they've got sort of very long-lasting, unexplained sort of changes to the bowel habits, or they've got pain or lump around the abdominal region if you're doing the physical examination. You want to be sure uh, that you ruled, ruled colorectal cancer out. Yeah, and it sounds like there is actually quite a lot of crossover between all these different conditions and then colorectal cancer as well. So, you know, in, in that case, is it best for community pharmacists to refer patients straight to their GP um, or specialists in, in that case? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you're unsure, then definitely refer. But these are quite good, good sort of symptoms that can tell you that whether you've got something here to sort of worry about or not. What are the possible complications if a patient does have inflammatory bowel disease and they, and they don't get it treated? So, I mean, there are a few complications around inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, you've got dehydration, weight loss, you know, you've got extraintestinal manifestations. So basically, it's just a fancy word, symptoms outside of the gut. So they could get symptoms on the skin, the eyes, you know, the liver, joints. So, you know, if it's skin, you can get something like psoriasis, eyes, you've got uveitis, you know, joints, got symptoms of arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. So, you know, it is an autoimmune condition, so we do sometimes see quite a little overlap on this. And so those are the kind of complications that you want to try and avoid in the long term. And obviously, the other aspect is, you know, if they've got Crohn's disease, for example, anal fissures or abscess or fistula, these are often, you know, complications of Crohn's disease. They can even get abdominal strictures or blockage or perforation. So you've got to be quite careful on that. I mean, these, these kind of complications are kind of, we tend to do quite a strict surveillance in these patients on, depending on their risk factors, whether they're high risk or low risk, etc. I mean, some of these risk factors will be the you know, family history of cancer, etc. So they will be under strict surveillance. The other it's a kind of complications you want to, be be aware of as you know patients with UC skin colon cancer. As time goes on, the longer they've got had their condition, that the higher the chances are of developing colon cancer. So again, uh, under secondary care, they are kind of you know under strict surveillance from that aspect. Okay, and I wanted to ask you. Um, so I know your experience is mainly in hospital, um, and I just wanted to know if during the last couple of months, you know, during the pandemic and, and lockdown, have you seen any increase in hospital admissions for inflammatory bowel disease, or notice any different patterns in patients presenting with inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, it's quite interesting actually. I mean, you mentioned that we, you know, in the past two to three weeks, we've had a quite a spike in cases of inflammatory bowel disease, especially ulcerative colitis. Now, it seems to be multifactorial in that, one, we're not really sure. I mean, what we are sure of in terms of inflammatory bowel disease, what the risk factors are, are genetic, some other environmental factors. What those exact environmental factors are, which we're still not quite sure yet. Um, And whether viruses are triggering uh, or tipping the inflammatory balance in the body and triggering these cytokines, etc., and causing a massive sort of inflammatory process. Um, so it's quite difficult to tell. We haven't got any evidence base to say COVID-19 is definitely exacerbating inflammatory bowel disease, but we've definitely seen some interesting spikes or cases as well. The other aspect to to kind of bear in mind as well, some patients have actually stopped taking their medications because They've been nervous, nervous about the whole virus, you know, and some of them are taking quite strong immunosuppressant agents, so immunomodulators or immunosuppressors. So, and it, and it goes down to really educating the patients. Now, 
the British Society of Gastroenterology has been quite clear that you know patients who are established on therapy should be maintaining their therapy and should be in close contact with their IVD specialist team before they stop the medication or altering. So it's around educating the patients because if they stop their medication, there is a bigger risk. If they flare, they have to be hospitalised. Again, you don't really want to be around that environment in the hospital and being at risk of catching COVID-19 as a result of you just being in the hospital. And, you know, part of the management of acute severe ulcerative colitis is, or even acute Crohn's is, is giving intravenous steroids. And we know that steroids is, has got an established risk, risk um, in terms of having increased contracting uh, respiratory tract infections. So, especially with an IBD cohort, um, so from that angle, you want to be even more cautious that we don't really want to go down that route. So yeah, so it's been quite an interesting phase. I think I think hopefully in the next few months we'll get some sort of clarity whether COVID nineteen is is a contributing factor or not. But but seems to be multifactorial. Yeah, and I think you know it just shows then how well placed community pharmacists are to make sure that patients are continuing to take their medication and also to give them reassurance about taking their medication during this time, um, whenever things are so uncertain. Yeah, absolutely, and I think community pharmacists have a massive role to play um, because community pharmacists actually are in contact with these patients more frequently than a secondary care healthcare professional or even you know uh, GPs. And also from an adherence perspective as well, you know, if they've got any issues um, with taking the medications, I think they have a much, much uh, bigger role to play, especially with the more topical treatments like your enemas and stuff in actually really ensuring that they've maximized or optimized their, their therapy in order to try and bring the condition under remission. And I guess now we talk a little bit about treatment. So, um, if you could just talk to me a little bit about how IBD is treated and then what over-the-counter treatments can be recommended for those with IBD who go into the pharmacy looking for something um, to help them with their symptoms. Yeah, um, I think what I'll do is just take a bit of a step back in terms of probably how inflammatory bowel disease is probably diagnosed, just to give it a bit of context and why we use those certain treatments. Like, you know, as I was saying earlier, sort of what you want to do, patients presenting with low abdominal symptoms, um, you, you want to rule out, you know, other other kind of conditions like IBS, celiac, et cetera, as well. And one of the ways to kind of diagnose inflammatory bowel disease is you can detect, so GPs can um, detect um, something called fecal calprotectin. So it's basically a protein released in the gut during the inflammatory process. And with, you know, with significant elevated uh, fecal calprotectin levels, it kind of is a, it's not a diagnostic, absolute diagnostic marker, but it's a good indicator that it could be inflammatory bowel disease. So then patients can be referred to secondary care for further investigations, whether they need a colonoscopy or flexi sigmoidoscopy and then they need biopsies where, you know, they'll take um, some samples and Look, you know, do some histology, etc., and that that kind of you know how it tends to be diagnosed. If it's mildly elevated um, in borderline, then the GPs tend to repeat it, and if it's still elevated, then again it's a cause for referral because they get because it's an inflammatory process. We can get a spike in fecal calprotectin even if patients have got sort of a moderate 
sort of gastroenteritis. So, you know, we want to rule out any gastroenteritis there as well. Also, you know, uh, C. diff infection is, 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 could be a culprit. So there's so many things that could be going on. And that's why it's quite important that we, we try and di uh, diagnose IBD appropriately. So fecal carboprotectin tends to be a good measure. Now, once, once it's kind of, um, diagnosed and we've got the picture of, of how extensive the disease is and where the exact location of the, of the disease is, whether it's small bowel or large bowel, et cetera, we then can, you know, start the treatment. So FITS tends to be mild to moderate. Uh, we tend to start with, uh, five ASAs. So like your mesalazines, we either give it topical. So if it's more like your proctitis, ulcerative colitis towards the descending colon or right, the sort of anal end of the region, then we tend to give enemas, topical therapy there. Or if it's more towards sort of like your transverse colon or ascending colon or sort of small bowel, um, we can give, you know, and it's mild disease, then we start patients on oral mesalazine therapies. Um, and we could either, we've got a few formulations that we can choose from. So it's quite important that we prescribe as a branded generic. So you've got like Octasa, you've got Asacol, you've got Pentasa, you've got Cellafork. And the difference fundamentally between, for example, uh, say Octasa and Pentasa is that one is pH dependent. So Octasa is pH dependent, profile release, and Pentasa is time dependent. So knowing where the can, you know, where the disease is, is quite important. So, so you can ensure you're given a good chance to try and bring the condition under sort of remission. Now, the kind of step up from that is if that doesn't come under uh, remission is giving them corticosteroids, so prednisolone. So normally what we would tend to do is start someone if they've got flare or, you know, it's not coming under remission, we would give prednisolone 40 milligrams and we wean it by, you know, every five days by five milligrams and hopefully that bridges the gap. Um, and hopefully brings them under remission. And if that doesn't work, we step up to thiopurines. So, and that's when you're sort of classifying as moderate to severe con uh, disease. Thiopurines, you've got azathioprine or 6-mecaptopurine. Um, I probably could do a podcast on that alone in terms of how it works, but probably we won't go into that now. But yeah, so it's a, you know, the key thing to know azathioprine is a pro-drug. Um, and it's metabolized by an enzyme called TPMT. So that stands for thiopurinous methyl transferase. And it gets converted into TGN, the thioguanine, which is the active metabolite. And too much of thioguanine will give you, you know, you're at high risk of, of getting bone marrow toxicity. Um, and, you know, one of the kind of byproducts or metabolite is MEMP, which is mesalmacaptopurine and too much of that you're likely to get hepatotoxic kind of side effects so i mean in secondary care or in primary care with with you know good shared care agreements you will be outlined as to how these patients are monitored etc but uh, i suppose for community pharmacists you know if you're doing a medicine use review i definitely have picked up someone probably having some sort of toxic side effect as a result of the medication you know, and you can refer them to GP or if they've got, you know, they know who their IBD point of contact is, their IBD nurse or IBD consultant, they can get in touch with them and kind of talk to them about it. 
And then if that doesn't work, so you know these these kind of drugs are kind of classed as conventional therapies. And if that doesn't work, then we kind of step them up in you know to to biological treatments. So where you've got anti TNF biologics such as infliximab, adalimumab, then you've got Janus kind of inhibitors like tofacitinib, then you've got IL-23 inhibitors like istekinumab, um, and then you've got vedolizumab as another biological agent. So we've got armory of weapons there where we can escalate therapy to, you know, and sometimes medical therapy is not always the right answer. Sometimes it's so severe that uh, you have to go for a surgical intervention, uh, either remove a part of your small bowel or large colon and and join it up and sometimes that has has a better outcome so and and these kind of decisions are made in kind of multidisciplinary teams and i think going back to your question about over-the-counter medications i can't really think of any medications that you could probably use uh for inflammatory bowel disease i think i think the key thing is you know to know say for example avoid ibuprofen on steroids because of the risk of bleeds etc so you want to kind of avoid that for pain relief, you can use paracetamol. We don't really strongly recommend opioids in inflammatory bowel disease because of what it does in terms of your gut motility. If we do give opioids, it's usually under the supervision of secondary care and sort of consultants. They kind of agree to it for whatever reason. Um, but but yeah, so that that can give you sort of the background in terms of the treatment pathway. And I guess it'd be good to know as well what kind of other advice community pharmacists can give patients, um, even those who've you know been newly diagnosed or, um, you know about exercise and life lifestyle kind of um advice and diet. What you know what could they recommend? I mean, I think key thing here is diet is, is absolutely important, and a lot of these patients are referred to dietitians because some patients have can react to certain foods or can act as a trigger point, so they tend to have a a consultation with dietitians um, and often patients are quite quite good at figuring out what foods can trigger it and what foods can help alleviate some of those symptoms that they get in terms of abdominal cramps etc but the really important bit is when, when the gut is in an inflammatory state especially your small bowel your your absorption gets impaired and these patients are at a higher risk of low calcium low vitamin d low iron so you really need a holistic approach, um, especially you know when you're dealing with pregnant women, for example, when nutrition is absolutely essential. So you know looking at the electrolytes is absolutely important that we top them up um, and keep them nourished from that angle. And if there are losing weight, again, is signposting them appropriately to ensure uh, they they can get the help they need. The take-home message is really. When patients are presenting with low abdominal symptoms, bear IBD in the back of your mind um, because there's so many overlapping symptoms between inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, celiac disease, colorectal cancer, even ovarian cancer. You've got bile acid malabsorption as well, um, which is probably another, uh, you know, it's quite, quite underdiagnosed and underrecognized as well. And then trying to tease out any red flag symptoms from that and refer appropriately and if you've got patients that are well you know well established or kind of diagnosed with IBD then it's ensuring that they've got the support that they need in terms of their medication adherence because that tends to be um, what, what I tend to find is you know patients are under remission 
um, and you know they feel really fine, especially the younger patients, and they just stop taking it. A few months later, they flare and it comes back. It could sometimes come back with vengeance. So it's just just sending that message out on a regular basis. I think the other thing I didn't talk about is mental health, um, and um, a lot of these you know we're getting more and more understanding about the gut brain axis, but mental health is is quite important um, because this this is one of those conditions where you can't physically see it. So you've got young students or um, people starting off early in their careers, quite established in their careers or whatever, and having to go maybe to a little 10, 15 times can be quite uncomfortable. So it's ensuring that they've got the right resources to make sure that they can go to the loo when needed, etc., because it can have a massive impact on their mind. Um, because a lot of people don't, you know, like I said, you can't really see the condition. It's a hidden disease. And how we frame disability in our mind is quite important that, that workplaces understand that. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot of charities and support groups that people can be directed to to get extra support, especially with their mental health as well. Yeah, Crohn's and Colitis um, is a fantastic charity um, and a really good place for resources for patients. That was C&D's Clinical Advisory Board member, Micken Patel. Micken is a lead pharmacist for gastroenterology at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. In this podcast, we discussed inflammatory bowel disease and symptoms and red flags that can be identified by community pharmacists. We also discussed the recent spike in hospital admissions for IBD and how this may be related to COVID-19. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please subscribe to CND Podcasts on iTunes or your preferred Android app. Thank you for listening.